Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, and you can check out all of my reviews, thousands and thousands of them, at my website. That's at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to click the link to my other film podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I look at newer movies that are out in theaters, if they ever come back to theaters in 2020. VOD streaming services, wherever you get your new movies, you can find the link at my website, quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the second part of this three-part series, looking at amiable aliens that have come to Earth, close encounters with benevolent aliens. Last week I looked at close encounters of the third kind, and this week I'm going to be looking at a film that pretty much came about because they were looking for a sequel to Close Encounters, and Spielberg wanted to be involved with that, but it's a very long and interesting process as to how it became E.T., The Extraterrestrial, which is what I'm going to be talking about today. It's a 1982 film. It's PG-rated. It does have some language. It does have violence. One hour and 55 minutes is the runtime. Henry Thomas, D. Wallace, Robert McNaughton, Drew Barrymore, and Peter Coyote are in the film. Steven Spielberg is the director. Melissa Matheson is credited for the screenplay. Now, E.T. the Extraterrestrial starts off in this forest outside of a California suburb. There's an alien spacecraft that lands. Several extraterrestrials emerge. They gather flora samples. Suspicious humans soon arrive, and the aliens make their escape. But they leave one behind in their hurry. He hides in a backyard shed, and he's soon discovered by a 10-year-old boy named Elliot. Startled and scared, Elliot hides the alien, who he dubs E.T., short for extraterrestrial, in his room, and they become friends. E.T. determines that he has to find his way back to his world. He has to gather materials necessary to build a transmitter and to so-called phone home for his kin to come back and get him. He appears to be growing weaker the longer that he remains on Earth, but Earth's scientists are not going to let such an extraordinary creature get away so quickly. Now, the seeds of E.T.'s origins came several years before 1982. Back in 1976, Steven Spielberg cast director Francois Truffaut in a supporting acting role for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And during their conversation, Spielberg told Truffaut that he too wanted to make a semi-autobiographical movie about boyhood after Jaws, but he wasn't so sure about where to begin to make such a film. So Truffaut encouraged Spielberg to make a small and very personal film strictly about kids, maybe an American version of his own 1976 film called Small Change, otherwise known as Pocket Money in other English-speaking countries around the world. Now, Small Change was a film about kids in Thiers, France, and it mixed Truffaut's own experiences with a collection of anecdotes about children that he had been collecting since his semi-autobiographical 1959 film called The 400 Blows. Spielberg developed his own semi-autobiographical idea at Universal Pictures. It was going to center around kids. Tentatively, he titled it Growing Up. It would be the story of a lonely boy and his siblings coping with the divorce of their parents, very much what Spielberg experienced in his teenage years. Now, for the screenplay, Spielberg enlisted the writing services of his USC chums, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale known mostly today for creating the Back to the Future series, but back then they had written and directed one of Spielberg's first productions called I Want to Hold Your Hand, and they were currently working with John Milius on the screenplay for 1941, which Spielberg was going to direct. 
The only instructions they received from Spielberg at that time was that they were to write a script about kids. They retitled the project from Growing Up to After School, and at this time they conceived of a wimps versus jocks aspect to the story. Spielberg gave his okay to this. In fact, he called it his vendetta film. He was a wimp in his school years, and this was going to be his way to give those bullies their comeuppance. Although Zemeckis and Gale drew from their experiences for the script, Spielberg did change the setting from Chicago to his childhood turf of Scottsdale, Arizona. But when the start date approached, Spielberg had second thoughts. There were others that he showed the script to that thought that the script was in bad taste. The gags were too mean-spirited. They were cynical. They were unperceptive. It was far from the movie that Truffaut had encouraged him to make. These potty-mouthed preteens did things that he did not experience until he was much older. And at that point, he felt this was not the time to get into this film. The only way to move forward was to start over. He felt he needed to do a little bit more growing up if he was going to make growing up. Meanwhile, Columbia Pictures, they were egging him on to make a Close Encounters sequel. But Spielberg owed Universal his next directorial effort. But he did not want Columbia to proceed without him with Close Encounters after what happened with the Jaws franchise, so he would serve as producer. That way he could maintain some control of what happens to the second Close Encounters film. UFO expert J. Allen Hynek, during their research for Close Encounters, he mentioned the 1955 Kelly Hopkinsville encounter where small, glowing aliens terrorized a Kentucky farm, at least that's what they report, Spielberg wanted to go with a title originally meant for Close Encounters, Watch the Skies, but they found out that somebody else had ownership to that title, so he changed the film's name to Night Skies. After failing to get Lawrence Kasdan as a writer, Kasdan was reworking The Empire Strikes Back at the time, Spielberg secured the services of John Sayles, Sales had been the screenwriter for a Jaws knockoff that Spielberg enjoyed called Piranha. For the director, Spielberg's first choice was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre's Toby Hooper. He said he would do it only if it were about ghosts instead of about aliens. But that would not fulfill Spielberg's Close Encounters sequel obligation, so he moved on to Ron Cobb, who was the art director from the film called Alien from 1979. Now, Spielberg met Cobb while he was drawing up ideas for Raiders of the Lost Ark. During downtime while he was working on Conan the Barbarian at Universal, Ron Cobb would walk over to view Spielberg working on the storyboards for Raiders, offering suggestions on how to shoot certain scenes, many that Spielberg utilized in the final film. Spielberg felt that Cobb had a director's eye, so he offered Night Skies as a low-tech breakthrough feature for him with a budget of about $1.5 million. While researching the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter, they hid an impasse. The family that was involved in that encounter refused to grant rights to their story, and they threatened to sue them if they were going to proceed with it. So Cobb met with Spielberg's and Sales in Paris. They decided to craft a similar but fictional story about 11 small, psychically powerful aliens terrorizing a captive farm family. Not in Kentucky, though. Spielberg envisioned straw dogs with aliens instead of drunken locals. Sales wrote it as John Ford's Drums Along the Mohawk, with aliens replacing the Indians. The leader of the evil aliens was named Scar. That was an homage to the murderous Comanche chief in John Ford's The Searchers. And Sales wrote one E.T. more benevolent than the others. His name was Buddy, and he would befriend an autistic boy named Jaybird. In the end, when the aliens leave, Buddy remains on Earth. 
At John Landis's suggestion, Spielberg secured makeup artist Rick Baker to create five distinct extraterrestrials. They decided to reduce the 11 ETs to five to reduce costs. Spielberg then went away, globe hopping around the world for shooting Raiders of the Lost Ark. So Baker and his crew worked pretty much unsupervised while they were doing double duty with an American werewolf in London for Landis just down the studio. When Spielberg finally visited to see their work, he was disappointed. They were behind schedule. The suits were way too expensive for their budget. So Spielberg had to ask Columbia for additional money, but they would not pay $3.5 million for makeup on a movie that was being directed by somebody without experience. Spielberg needed time to rethink his plans on moving forward, and that was the second film he was stuck on. So Spielberg started thinking more and more, and he was very fatigued with all of the violence that he had to put in Raiders. He was ready for something different. He reasoned that aliens would not travel 100 plus light years just to terrorize a farm family and to mutilate their livestock. So while he was in Tunisia continuing to shoot Raiders, Spielberg started longing for another film that made people feel good inside, like Close Encounters. His heart was no longer with the violent horror of Night Skies, but he liked this notion that was in Night Skies of a misfit boy befriending an alien, maybe one that was left behind from Close Encounters. That could be the natural spinoff. As he started to daydream about these ideas, he merged this concept with elements of the slice-of-life film about growing up in suburbia, and a new idea formed. The new title for his reimagined hybrid story that combined growing up with Night Skies was called E.T. and Me. Now, Spielberg hoped John Sayles could continue his work. He could overhaul the script, but by that point... Sales was directing his own effort called Liana, so he was not available. Now, Sales did not end up arbitrating for credit for what would become the next film because the tone and plot were substantially different. E.T. essentially began where Night Skies ended, with one of the E.T.'s left on Earth, although Sales would go on to do his own version of E.T. in 1984 with his The Brother from Another Planet. Kathleen Kennedy, Spielberg's associate producer, she suggested talking to Melissa Matheson, Harrison Ford's, at that time, girlfriend, later wife. She happened to be on the Raiders set with Harrison. Matheson wrote The Black Stallion, or co-wrote it, with its similar friendship between an orphaned boy and a horse. She was the perfect writer, in their estimation, to handle this emotionally sensitive children's tale with a fairy tale atmosphere. When Spielberg told her his idea for a story, Matheson compared that story to Winnie the Pooh. If Christopher Robin's friend was an alien instead of this imaginary creature, helping this lonely boy get through a painful time. Matheson herself, her parents similarly divorced when she was a teenager, and she wept at the conclusion of Spielberg's story. When Spielberg first asked if she would write it, Matheson turned it down. Matheson was suffering writer's block, so severe that she, in her mind, retired from the profession. She really could not continue. But Spielberg would not take no for an answer. And so with the help of Harrison Ford and Kathleen Kennedy and their cajoling, within a few days, when he asked again, she agreed to write the screenplay. So Matheson went to work on the screenplay, and she would meet occasionally, weekly, to touch base with Spielberg on her ideas. And by the time she was done with her first draft, Spielberg had his turn to cry, reading this completed story. The first draft was as Spielberg had pitched it, and it included such things as Elliot having a comical friend named Lance who turns to be an enemy later, and they would also have a very supportive adult Mr. Wizard type who helps the kids. He was ready to shoot it the next day. He claimed this was the best first draft that he had ever read. 
Subsequent revisions, though, were similar. They removed the comical friend. Spielberg had, at that time, cast Corey Feldman into that role, but he got axed out. He would make up for it by casting him in Gremlins. The helpful adult, the Mr. Wizard type, was also cut out. They both still exist in the novelization, though. Matheson did add some of her own ideas. She created the psychic link between the boy and the alien and the bikes flying across the sky sequences. Also removed, perhaps wisely, was a scene where E.T. is watching television and he heals with his healing powers, J.R. Ewing, when he takes a bullet on TV's Dallas, very famously, I think in 1980 or so. Spielberg connected personally and emotionally to E.T. and me as the story developed. So he told Ron Cobb that he was going to find something else for him to direct. He needed to be the one to bring it to life. Cobb was relieved by this, by the way. When Spielberg told him what he was making, he regarded it as kind of a sappy Christ allegory. Coming from the heavens, his healing touch, his resurrection, his invocations to be good. Spielberg does say that Jesus was not his reference for E.T., being of the Jewish faith. His mother would kill him if he was going to be doing such a thing. So E.T.'s miracles came from a combination of powers from the aliens that happened to be in night skies and also Matheson bringing some of those in. She pulled Harrison Ford's kids and some of their friends on what powers that they thought an alien should or would have. Despite doing nothing, though, Cobb, he was contractually entitled to $7,500 and 1% of the film's profits. So he became a millionaire on what would become one of the biggest hits of all time. Actually, the biggest hit when it was released. Now, Rick Baker, the makeup man, he protested that this perfectly good scare flick that he had been working on and he invested so much time and effort and energy and money into was becoming a Disney movie. Disney movies were pretty much derided in the early 1980s as kind of passe. Spielberg, though, despised Rick Baker's unenthusiastic response to him changing the nature of the film. So after Rick Baker told him to talk to his attorney if he expected him to work on a different film without additional money, Spielberg replaced him with Carlo Rambaldi. Rambaldi had worked with Spielberg on Close Encounters. He had made those well-made alien suits for a reasonable cost at a reasonable clip. So he was expected to do the same for E.T. and me. Now, as for the good scare flick going away, well, it never really died. A lot of the intent of Night Skies the terrorized family under siege that morphed into Spielberg productions like 1982's Poltergeist, bringing back Toby Hooper, that desired haunted house flick that he had wanted to make. Well, he got it with that one. 1984's Gremlins features really a lot of the same plot as Night Skies, except it's not set on a farm. It's in suburbia as well. And it also features, if you look closely, there was a movie marquee in Gremlins, displaying E.T.'s alternate titles, Watch the Skies, and A Boy's Life, which was the production title for the film, for reasons I'll get to in a moment. Now, the premise also inspired other films like 1986's Critters, that also starred D. Wallace, and M. Night Shyamalan's Signs, much later, with another farm under siege from Aliens. Although Close Encounters saved Columbia Pictures from bankruptcy, Spielberg's 1941, in which Columbia Pictures jointly went forward with Universal for financial reasons, It was pretty much a flop, so that reduced Spielberg's leverage. Columbia opposed his new direction. They demanded a proper sequel to Close Encounters, not this kid's flick that's similar to another film that they were developing at the time called Starman. Feeling passionate about making the movie, Spielberg went to ask his mentor, MPCA President Sid Scheinberg. He told him he could buy it out from Columbia and he would be the director. So Universal gave Columbia $1 million for the turnaround fees, plus a 5% profit deal under the condition that Columbia did not release Starman until at least six months 
after E.T. Of course, it didn't come out till a couple of years afterward, but to complete his obligation to Columbia for a Close Encounters follow-up, Spielberg decided to create a special edition of Close Encounters that was released in 1980. Now, Spielberg independently financed $10 million for E.T. and Me's budget. He stressed absolute secrecy. He changed the working title to the less descriptive A Boy's Life. Like Close Encounters, everybody working on the film had to sign non-disclosure agreements. He set up shop off of the Universal lot in Laird International Studios in Culver City. Now, I think it's Culver Studios or Culver City Studios for the interiors. The forest sequences were done in Crescent City up in Northern California, exterior home shots in Tujunga, and suburban neighborhood footage in Northridge, California. Spielberg and Matheson imagined E.T., the character, as ugly but not scary. Children should love him because of who he is inside, not for his cuteness outside. So Spielberg wanted a short, stocky alien with this telescoping neck, and that neck was put in so that audiences would know that there was not a person inside. This was going to be a puppet with mechanics and electronics all involved, not just a person in a suit, although there is a person in the suit for some of the full-body shots. In Spielberg's mind, E.T. was this ancient botanist vegetarian that came from a dense and humid planet. In fact, he envisioned him as more plant than animal, basically a vegetation creature himself. For E.T.'s eyes and face, Spielberg liked the sad eyes of older people. He especially liked the eyes of Albert Einstein and Carl Sandburg and Ernest Hemingway. Pat Welsh, she was this smoky-voiced sexagenarian housewife that was discovered by soundman Ben Burt one day. She provided E.T.'s voice, although it was electronically enhanced, and a few other sounds and a few other people contributed to some of E.T.'s noises. Carlo Rambaldi constructed E.T. using four replaceable heads with specific mechanics and electronics. It cost about $1.5 million for all of these different versions of E.T. And E.T., the main one that they were using, required 12 technicians to operate fully, plus little people in bodysuits that were fitted with a radio-controlled E.T. head on top. For his hands, because they could not operate all of that, and also his hands, a mime wearing gloves with extended fingers would control E.T.'s arms, picking up objects with his hands, including Reese's Pieces. And by the way, Reese's Pieces were not the first choice for the candy that E.T. likes, but M&M's, the parent company, did not think E.T. would adequately represent their company. They lost millions and millions of dollars in advertising Reese's Pieces. Their sales really spiked after the release of E.T. In fact, there were commercials that called Reese's Pieces E.T.'s candy, and kids were eating them, definitely putting them on their radar after that. Now, E.T. blends two heartfelt themes. One incorporates Spielberg's feelings of isolation and emotional anxiety after the divorce of his parents. At that time, he wished for a friend, even an imaginary friend, to assure him during those days. The other theme that he brings in is this ugly duckling story, and that represents somebody who does not fit in with the rest, with society. Elements of immigrants and being a minority in the United States are found within E.T. and his bond with those who have not been overcome by societal prejudices, namely kids. They don't have a lot of the set prejudices of adults and are more accepting of others who are not quite fitting into society. Now, Spielberg took a loose approach in making E.T. and Me. 
he decided to forego storyboards, except for some visual effects sequences. Carol Littleton filled in as editor. This would be Spielberg's only film after Jaws that was not edited by Michael Kahn, so that made it a little bit different. For cinematography, Spielberg, he wanted Bernardo Bertolucci's wingman, Vittorio Storaro, but he was unavailable, as was William Fraker, who Spielberg worked with for 1941. So Spielberg turned to a friend of his, Alan Davio, who had photographed Spielberg's 1968 short film called Amblin, the award-winning Amblin. In fact, his production company was named after that short film. Davio also did a scene for the special edition of Close Encounters, and Spielberg had Davio. He was working for the first time here on a feature film. He had him watch all of Vittorio Storaro's movies so he would know what he was expecting for E.T. In fact, he would begin each sequence asking, so how would Vittorio shoot this as inspiration? Spielberg wanted his film to be from a child's perspective, so Davio shot from a camera on a dolly four feet from the ground. No other adult other than the mother is shown above the waist until the end, kind of like Tom and Jerry cartoons and other cartoons that Spielberg was so enamored with when he was growing up. As you know, E.T. and Me was not the title that was released. Universal test marketed five titles to see which sparked the most audience interest. E.T. and Me, E.T., the Extraterrestrial, The Landing, and Upon a Star. Upon a Star and The Extraterrestrial fared the best, while the intended title of E.T. and Me fared the worst, so they were not going to go with that one. Audience did not know what E.T. meant. They didn't know it was short for Extraterrestrial. So Universal decided to make it a little more explicit. They would go with the title that defined it, E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Now, when it was released, E.T. was, of course, an instant commercial and critical success. It broke the all-time box office record. It garnered nine Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay for Matheson. And it took home three technical Oscars and one for John Williams' amazing score. E.T., it plays more like a fantasy than science fiction. It has a mythical forest, it has thick fog everywhere, human adversaries whose shadows cast ominous darkness around this sunny California neighborhood, Peter Pan, homage all over this film, young children believing in the fantastic and also in the one who had magical powers. The film was shot in continuity. Spielberg wanted the kids to remember the progression of the story and the emotional content, and the ending was sincerely emotional for the kids. They viewed E.T. by that point as a real being, and they would really not see E.T. again in their lives. So the sadness at the end of this film is real for these kids. E.T. hit number one at the box office in mid-June of 1982. It remained there for almost every week over the next several months, and it was still number one come Thanksgiving time, and nearly a year after its release, it was still in the top 10 money earners. E.T. took in a total of $359 million in the U.S. box office and another $304 million internationally, not counting the re-releases that would come like in 1985 and 2002. But the most treasured accolade among all of these Oscar nominations and these box office records, Spielberg received a telegram sent by Francois Truffaut after E.T.'s premiere at Cannes, and it read simply, you belong here more than me, which was a callback to a line that Truffaut delivered, they belong here more than we, in Close Encounters. That brought Spielberg to tears because E.T. was really born from the suggestion that Truffaut made 
back in 1976. Now, E.T. benefits from excellent casting. It has a terrific breakthrough performance here from Henry Thomas. Elliot, as portrayed by Thomas, is nuanced and layered and has a sense of wonderment and imagination that many boys his age have. Instantly relatable for young kids. Drew Barrymore, well, she actually had not gone for this role. She had auditioned for the other Spielberg film that was coming out in 1982. She auditioned for Carol Ann in Poltergeist. But she got the Gertie role when Juliette Lewis's father forced her to turn it down when it was offered. And Spielberg felt Barrymore worked better as Gertie than Carol Ann. So that's why she played the role. The interplay among the siblings is it's often improvised, but it's still spot on. Although Shelley Long turned down the mother role to appear in Night Shift, Dee Wallace is superb as the mother, still shell-shocked from her husband's departure. She's struggling with single motherhood with these three rambunctious children to raise. E.T. has gone on since then to become a staple for families, especially for younger children. It has many touching moments, imaginative effects. It has memorable scenes galore. It's a simple tale. It's just about friendship between this emotionally struggling young boy and this homesick alien, but it's told with great care, with Spielberg developing their relationship without rushing into a lot of action sequences or suspense just to have them. Emotional liberties do abound. I mean, this is a film that runs high on emotion, maybe less so on logic. Bike rides through the sky, they evoke beauty and imagination. It can strain realism if you are jaded, if you are skeptical about these things. I mean, if you're witnessing young boys somehow just instantly accepting something that would likely be terrifying in real life, you know, instead of exhilarating, to fly in the air on their bikes and to keep pedaling as if that were the thing that was propelling them. You know, there's this entire sequence that has E.T. getting drunk on drinking Coors beer, and then we flash to Elliot in his class about to dissect a frog, and somehow Elliot has this psychic bond with E.T. You know, it doesn't really make sense, but I guess if you presume that E.T., when he uses his healing powers on anything... They become somehow one with him after that, so they, they're they connected with him. So Elliot, while E.T. is drinking, he appears to be sloshed, and so he frees the frogs that they're about to dissect. Uh, by the way, Spielberg, he, in his younger years, set a few frogs free when he was in school, so that was born from something that really happened to Spielberg. Elliot makes out with a classmate, by the way, Henry Thomas. That was the one thing that he did not want to do. He had to get pressured into it. He makes out with Erica Eleniak the future Baywatch star for that sequence in a scene that recreates one from a John Wayne classic, The Quiet Man. In fact, that's featured quite heavily in that scene. There are moments here of hyperbolic intensity. There's a scene involving government agents invading the home, wearing NASA spacesuits, busting through windows and doors, kind of like Night of the Living Dead style. But these scenes are built with a child's point of view in mind. They play up these events for fun or fright, whatever kids would respond to. So... That's why this is a movie that runs more on emotions than logic. This is from a kid's recollections. But if you don't mind a little sweetness or even a lot, I think you can easily forgive these indulgences for the sake of the overall entertainment, which is immense. Now, personally speaking, since I saw this film at first when I was about 11 years old, maybe a little bit older than many of you who grew up watching it since the time you were four or five or six, I have long struggled somewhat with my feelings toward E.T. I've always liked it, and I loved many aspects of the film. I love the humor. I love the friendship parable. The semi-religious subtext I find interesting, like in Close Encounters, Belief is Power, Science a Threat. The masterful puppetry here. The full body shots are less convincing, but I do feel like E.T. is real. I never start looking at it as just an object. And the rousing John Williams score are terrific. There are Those artistic liberties taken by Spielberg, I do think, can seem out of place in a movie that builds as delicate 
I think your reaction depends on your willingness to give yourself up to this emotional pull of Spielberg's vision. As a science fiction piece, it is flawed, sometimes manipulative, but as a children's fairy tale, the more exceptional qualities make E.T. a full-hearted experience, as wondrously enriching and as tenderly rewarding as there has been in the history of family-oriented cinema. So, I will say this. One thing that did change in this recent viewing of E.T. for the purpose of this review, that was different than any other time that I watched E.T. from the time I was 11 all the way through my adulthood, was that I was watching it with my 8-year-old daughter, Lily. And I came away watching E.T. with her eyes, absolutely loving it. And I can see why so many millions and millions and millions of people think that E.T. is a great work. And so that's why I am today going to give E.T., the extraterrestrial, four stars out of four. Four stars on my scale means that I do think that E.T. is an excellent film. I definitely think that it's required viewing for anyone going through their childhood. So many themes here to relate to. My daughter Lily absolutely loves it. Just shot right up to her favorite film, at least for the moment. Who knows what she'll change it to next week. But for right now, E.T. is riding high in our thoughts, and that's why I will give it four stars out of four. Now, there was, as I mentioned earlier, a 2002 20th anniversary edition that was released into theaters. It digitally remasters the film. It adds some new CGI to E.T. It sanitizes some of the harsher elements, some of the guns, changed the walkie-talkies or flashlights, and it incorporates five minutes of footage that was not in the original release. But there were some things that were shot but still did not get put into this film. For instance, there's allusions to E.T. having a crush on the mom that still remains on the cutting room floor. There's a sequence with Harrison Ford as the school principal and also Melissa Matheson as a school nurse. Those remain excised. Since then, Spielberg has come to regret his revisitation of E.T. He has said that he prefers the theatrical cut once again, and he reissued the theatrical cut on Blu-ray when it was released. So I don't think that he will endorse the anniversary edition despite having directly worked on it So only watch that one out of curiosity. Now, after the success of E.T., by the way, Melissa Matheson, she wrote a nine-page treatment for a sequel that was scheduled to come out in the summer of 1985 called E.T. 2 Nocturnal Fears. The story borrowed ideas from Night Skies with E.T. We find out among his people, his real name is Zrek. He has to rescue Elliot and his friends from a band of evil aliens that have kidnapped them. Now, Spielberg pulled the plug on this because by that point, he felt the sequel was going to tarnish the virginity of E.T., thankfully, because that was a terrible idea for a follow-up to this very gentle and emotional tale. Now, Spielberg has never made a sequel and says he never will, but there was a story that he came up with for the 1985 book called E.T., The Book of the Green Planet, and that was written by the author of the E.T. novelization, William Kotzwinkel, and that featured E.T. on his home planet trying to reconnect with Elliot. So there's a sequel, I guess, idea there that Spielberg had his involvement with. Some things that continue the story that Spielberg didn't have direct involvement with was the no longer existing E.T. adventure ride at Universal Studios Florida. And if you watched commercials recently, and also YouTube, it was kind of a viral sensation. There was a commercial made for Xfinity or Sky, depending on your location, that reunites E.T. with an adult Elliot, played by the adult Henry Thomas. That serves as a continuation of the story that received Spielberg's blessing because it really did rehash E.T. once again. It's a short film. You can find it easily online if you do a search for it. In the United States, it was called A Holiday Reunion. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this retrospective look at E.T. and its making and and also me sharing some of my personal thoughts, even though I know a lot of people love 
ET and were not very happy for me to be somewhat critical about certain aspects of it, even though I wholeheartedly embrace it now. If you have your own thoughts on ET that you want to impart after listening to this, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. You can also find links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. You can follow me there, get my posts, and you can also interact with me there. Any of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me anytime you want. Quipster.net is where you can find all of the information. Now, for next week, I'm going to be getting into a film that I briefly mentioned during the body of this review. It's the film that Columbia Pictures decided that they would rather go with than E.T. at the time. 1984's film directed by John Carpenter, although that wasn't always going to be the case. I will get into the making of John Carpenter's Starman, featuring Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen on the next episode. So if you haven't seen Starman in a while, or if you haven't seen it at all, I do encourage you to watch it. I seem to recall it being a pretty good movie, at least a, a very amusing one in many respects. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 